0: We're coming to the end of our series that we started at the beginning of this year called Growing Up Sacramental. This is about participating in Christ from birth to death, not only as individuals, but as the church. Um, So we're going to talk this week about the future of the church, and next week we're going to do a part two on evangelism uh, from Acts 8. So um, does the church have a future? Does the church have a future? One high-profile author recently put up a social media post where she said this, I was a church baby from the womb. I came up through youth group, church camp, see you at the poll, purity culture, acquire the fire, DC talk, rededicate your life to God subculture. I was a pastor's wife, yet I haven't attended church in six months, maybe longer. I feel a strange disorientation. I remain stubbornly attached to Jesus, yet church confuses me. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever thought that? I remain stubbornly attached to Jesus, but church, not so much. It confuses me. So what has replaced the local church for this individual? She says this, Church to me right now feels like my best friends, my porch bed, my children, and my parents, and my siblings It feels like meditation and all these leaves on my 12 pecan trees. It feels like Ben Rector on repeat. It feels like my kitchen and my table and my porch. It feels like Jesus who never asked me to meet him anywhere but in my heart. So this author doesn't just speak for herself. She speaks for a lot of people right now that love Jesus but hold his church at a distance, hold the church in suspicion, and wonder if maybe outside the church is the best place to meet Jesus. Is that the future of the church? Out of the pews and into the pecan trees, is it time to move on from the creeds, the songs, the scriptures, the calls to repentance and discipleship, the acts of mission? Um... Does the church have a future or has Jesus moved on? Does he just want to meet us in our hearts and only speak through nature? Has the Holy Spirit moved on? Should we evolve to a higher plane of spirituality that's less messy, more simple, less confusing, more spiritual, potentially? Um, So to answer that question, we're going to look at the history of the local church. If you've ever seen a good counselor or if you've been through the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course, you know that a lot can be gained. You can move forward better if you move back first, and you look at what were my origins, what shaped me, what was the original vision, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Luke the historian describes one of the pivotal turning moments of the local church, and he shows us the church at her best without some of the corruptions, without some of the complications, we can look back and see what can we get back to? What is our future by looking at our past? What made the church vibrant in her earliest days? And then um, how did Jesus relate with his church? What did he, where did he want to meet people after he ascended to the father's right hand? Did he want to meet them in the pecan trees or did he want to meet them somewhere else? And so, um, When the church gets this right, she has a future. When the church gets Acts 2, 42 through 47 right, she has a future. And she does have a future, and she will have a future. And so let's turn there and see what it is. First uh, first of all, we see that um, instead of deconstruction, we find devotion in the early church. Instead of deconstruction, we find devotion. Verse 42 says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. There was the apostles' teaching from the scriptures. There was the fellowship, which is the sharing of goods. There was the breaking of bread, which is the, uh, the Lord meeting them in the Eucharistic meal, the bread and the wine. And then the prayers, these prayers which were likely a combination of liturgical prayers rooted in the Jewish scriptures as well as the spontaneous prayers that come from the hearts and situations of the people who had gathered. Now, leading up to this moment, the disciples themselves had been through a process of deconstruction. They had been through plenty of deconstruction of their faith, um, and the Lord Jesus himself had led them through it. Why? Well, because this is actually a very important part of the journey of faith that all of us have extra biblical ideas and hopes um, and and habits that attach themselves to otherwise healthy faith. And the disciples, this was true for them as well. They wanted a non-crucified king of Israel to be their leader. And Jesus literally had to crucify that. He had to deconstruct that vision and that hope through his cross. And you can see that even all along the way, if you read the first volume of of Luke's um, writings, it was his biography of the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and resurrection of Jesus, that he had to like, at critical moments, stop and say, you know, this is how the Gentiles lead. This is not how I lead. And I will die. And after three days rise again. And they didn't get it. They didn't want to get it. He had to crucify and deconstruct their hopes their wishes, their vision of what life in Jesus would look like. You can even see this on the road to Emmaus. Jesus is walking with these, these uh, two uh, disciples that were like, we had hoped, we had hoped that he would restore the kingdom to Israel. And then you can also see it in Acts chapter 1, where are like, Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And he has to say to them, it's not for you to know the dates and times and seasons, but you'll receive power. You see, the Lord had to take them through an important process of deconstructing unhealthy ideas, extra biblical visions, so that they could get down to the pure biblical vision of what life with Jesus would look like. They had already been through deconstruction. It was painful. It was hard. It was necessary. And it's necessary for us often, for us to have, you know, deconstructed ideas The things that don't belong in the Christian faith do need to be unattached and put on the cross so that we can receive something better, what Jesus has. Um, So, whenever our expectations run ahead of the Bible, deconstruction can be healthy, and yet that's not where Jesus stops. He doesn't stop there, and neither should we. Um, We see devotion We see devotion in the early church, devotion to the apostles' teaching from the Bible, devotion to the Eucharistic meal of Jesus, devotion to the prayers, and devotion to the koinonia, the sharing. This is not the feeling of being close. That often follows. It's the activity of sharing your life, sharing your table, sharing your stuff, sharing your money, sharing your time. We can think of these four things as gifts from Jesus. We started this series talking about gifts. Jesus gives us tangible ways of unwrapping his grace, unwrapping his love, and enjoying him, drawing near to him. If you want to be close to Jesus, he's given you ways to do it inside the local church, and that's, that's scripture and the sacraments and the prayers and the sharing of our life. And for us to come around these things with the faith that we have, with the energy that we have, and to say, yes, I want this, I am devoting myself to you, Jesus, and I'm devoting myself to your bride, whom you have not abandoned. That's where he wants to meet us. If you've ever given a gift to somebody that you care about, that you have labored for, that you've thought about, well, man, what would they like? What would bless them? You don't want that to see them unwrap the gift and then deconstruct the gift and talk about how it's just, ah, that's just a necklace. That's just some medals. What good is that? That's, you know, that's just some cloth that I put on my body. Do you even care about me? I'm going to, I'm actually, there are other ways that I would like for you to love me, that I'm going to love you. Can we just burn these gifts, deconstruct these gifts, leave them aside? That would be to throw aside what Jesus has given his life to give us. He gave his life to give us what we are receiving this morning and what we receive every week and every day in the life of the church His scriptures came at a cost. The prayers came at a cost. The Eucharistic meal, he gave his life to give us his life. The koinonia, the sharing of life. These are precious, precious gifts, not to be deconstructed, but so that we can devote ourselves to them. And this devotion makes us salty. It makes us distinct. We become his people as a result. Now, some may be here, and you might be thinking, you know what? I'm burned out. I can't do that. That sounds like works righteousness to me. That sounds like you're asking a devotion from me that I'm not capable of. Now, there was a time when I was in my mid-20s when I was burned out. The only devotion I could show to Jesus was simply showing up. That was the devotion I could show. It was in showing up. That was my devoting myself to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. It was just showing up and bringing the faith that I had. If you think about how the Lord builds his church, Peter talks about it's like living stones being built into a temple. And maybe all you can do is just bring yourself as a stone. The Lord will take you and he will add the mortar and he will will do the chiseling and he will add you. He will let you rest on the common devotion and the faith that is present here through the Holy Spirit. Because there's some here who have been through that Stage and they're beyond that stage, and they have faith to bring that you can rest on. Bring your burned-out faith; it matters to the Lord. Bring your skeptical faith; it matters to Jesus. Devote yourself in the in whatever you have to bring. Show up and devote yourselves. This is where we find our Lord, and this is where we find the future of the church. Maybe you're here and you're not burned out. You have a growing sense of hope. I've talked to more and more at Emmanuel with a growing sense. That the Lord is ready to meet us not only in worship, but also in mission. And there's more evangelism happening in the life of our church right now than there ever has been in our eight-year history. And it's amazing. And I want to say, keep it up. Bring your heart here. Bring your devotion here. There is no future in endless deconstruction. All you're left with is a bunch of broken pieces. And that's not where Jesus wants to meet us. Jesus builds his church. He gathers the broken pieces together, and he constructs something that we couldn't do on our own. So the scriptures, the sacraments, the prayers, and our giving, are treasures, they're what we can bring, and they're also what we can receive. Our future as the church will grow brighter as we devote ourselves to this uh, this collection of gifts that Jesus has given us. So we see devotion, we don't see deconstruction when the church was at her best. Secondly, instead of cynicism, we find awe and wonder. Instead of cynicism, we find awe and wonder. Verse 43 says this, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now in our day, we have seen a widespread failure of the Christian celebrity machine. It's one thing for for, uh, celebrities to betray the people that trusted them. That's one thing. It's quite another thing when the followers of that celebrity or the systems that promoted and sustained that celebrity also took part in betraying the people who followed this Christian celebrity. So um, the same is true, celebrity or not, if if you have been wounded or hurt by someone in your life, whether it's a pastor or a leader or a boss or someone who has betrayed you or hurt you in some way, that is going to sting and there's going to be a process of recovery from that. There's a temptation if we've been hurt and the temptation is cynicism. Here's what Paul Miller says about cynicism. He says, cynicism begins with the wry assurance that everyone has an angle I think we, we could just stop there, that cynicism really begins with and gets stuck in the wry assurance that everyone I talk to has an angle. Everyone wants something, and that power itself is suspect. Um, Paul Miller goes on, the cynic is always observing, critiquing, but never engaged, loving, and hoping. To be cynical is to be distant. It leads to a creeping bitterness that can deaden and even destroy the spirit. That's what cynicism will do. So how can we distinguish between trustworthy and untrustworthy leaders without falling in the trap of cynicism? And this is where holy discernment can help us. Jesus himself taught about holy discernment in his Sermon on the Mount when he says, Watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And he warned, he warned us, he said, there's going to be self-appointed messiahs that will ride to the rescue and say, I'm here to help, only I can fix it, you've got to trust me, you've got to trust me. Um, so Jesus said it, wolves exist, and we need to watch out for them. You'll know them by their fruit, Jesus says. You'll know them by their track record. What's their track record? Do they leave a wake of followers that exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, goodness, faith? Or do they leave a track record of destruction? Do they destroy lives? You'll know their track record. Um, that's, so that takes a lot of skill. That takes a lot of grace. It takes a community. Cynicism is different than that. Cynicism is more of a blunt instrument. All power is suspect, all leaders are corrupt, and thus God cannot work through human beings. So the logic goes like this God can speak through trees and rivers and pecan trees, but He can't speak through women, He can't speak through men, certainly not through leaders or apostles or prophets or anyone else with a mouth and a voice. Yet note again the description in verse 43. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Notice that the awe and the wonder is not at the apostles themselves, which is that celebrity culture. Whoa, you're so much better than I am, and yet maybe I can become like you if I hustle hard enough. The awe is at the Lord Jesus, his holiness, his wonder, his power, his grace, working through the church. As Pastor Corey said last week, it's God popping out of his people. That's where the awe and the wonder is. Yet, he's still choosing to do great works through sinful, broken people. That was his original intent when he came upon the church. Jesus doesn't cast away human beings. That's not his heart. He doesn't destroy nature. He redeems it. And redeeming nature means redeeming human speech, which was present, it was very good. It was very good at creation, and it's still very good to our Lord. He redeems human speech. He redeems human leadership. He redeems human power. He works wonders and works through his women and men who love him, follow him, and devote themselves to him, who are themselves under authority. He wants women and men to receive dignity, And give ministry to one another. He wants you to give and he wants you to receive in the context of human community. Yes, in nature. Yes, in pecan trees. Yes, in rivers. And yes, to women and men with gifts to give. According to Joel, which Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost, the day of the Lord is marked not only by signs and wonders in nature, but also signs and wonders in people prophesying, young and old, men and women, dreaming dreams and prophesying on the day of the Lord. So Jesus here chooses to work through their apostles. They're preaching, they're healing, the wonders and signs that come through their hands. It's not them, it's the Lord, but it works through human agency. The apostles were vessels without becoming celebrities. Do it again, Lord, in our day. Vessels without celebrities. We need that and we long for that. I remember meeting with a couple from Iran. I've told this story I think once before who would they themselves had experienced a great miracle at God's hand. It's a series of miracles. So much to, to where I couldn't even believe it. I could barely believe it. The, uh, the husband, before he met his wife, the husband was saved out of a life of uh, like professional fighting. He showed me a picture of him uh, when he was right in the middle of that, and he looked like he was possessed by at least one demon. And he himself said that he was, that he was absolutely under the control of darkness. That his life was a complete wreck. He was on drugs. He was in fights all the time. He heard, over, he heard secondhand as he was walking in the streets of Iran that God was a father. He was saved on the spot. Uh, the, he was delivered from demonic oppression. He became a Christian. Now, the wife's testimony went like this. She was abused in her home. She did everything she could to escape um, from her house because her father and her brothers abused her. So she finally escaped. She ended up um, engaging in survival prostitution, um, I believe in the streets of Tehran. Um, She got addicted to um, a very very enslaving form of crack to just numb the pain. She was in so much pain. And when she was close to death, I mean, she had reached out to God in many different ways. Someone mentioned to her, You should try reaching out to Jesus. In a half hearted prayer, she did. And then one night, Jesus came to her in a visible, physical manifestation. He held her in his arms all night long. The next morning, she was delivered. She found that she no longer needed to use the uh, addictive form of crack at all. She was completely delivered. She found a church, she grew in Christ. Eventually, her and her husband were arrested and put in prison for converting to Jesus. In the prison, they planted a church. So God continued to work miracles to them. And then when their lives were in danger, they were, uh, they were somewhat miraculously delivered from prison, and they found their way to the United States where I heard their testimony in Oak Park, Illinois. Okay? Now, I was in, I was in awe. You hear this story, and it's like, what else can God do? And I was expressing this. The wife said to me, don't put us on a pedestal. We struggle. We're just sinners like you. This is about God. This is not about us. The apostles, I think, would tell us the same thing. Don't be in awe of us. We're sinful, broken human beings. I mean, Peter himself, he was really honest. When Mark was like taking notes about what happened with the life of Jesus, he's like, yeah, I denied our Lord. It's it's all over the gospels. Peter's failures and Peter's boneheadedness and yet God worked through him. Jesus said, follow me. I've got something for you to do. God is gracious. He gave us his son. He gave us his spirit. He gave us his gifts, not just in general, but to specific people that he loves so much. And by his grace, he works through sinful people who are joined to him, in response, we do not put people on pedestals, but we hold God in awe, and cynicism will not allow that. Cynicism will eat away at that like an acid bath. Holy discernment is going to be better for us. Holy discernment is going to let us keep our sense of awe and wonder in what God can do. The church is not leaderless, and the church is not giftless, and the church is not voiceless. The church is not powerless, and the church is certainly not peopleless. So let us turn to the Holy Spirit and let him work through, let us have the humility of receiving each other's gifts. The future of the church is not in a cynical place of deconstruction, but a place of awe and wonder as God works new creation in our midst through women and men right here. You say this, the church hurt me. How could I ever trust again? Leaders hurt me. How could I ever trust again? Here's what the Lord might invite you to do. Hey, draw close. There's no healing outside of relationship here. Um, Work through. Don't get stuck in that hurt. Because what happens is that if we internalize our hurt from leaders, and it's bound to happen, if we internalize our hurt from, from just people in the church, if we internalize our hurt... Guess what, that ha- guess what that becomes? That will become cynicism, and the people who hurt you will have even more power than they ever had because they will live rent-free in your mind and imagination and in your heart, and you'll never be able to trust again. That would be a shame. That would leave you without the ability to receive gifts from other people. So, instead of deconstruction in the early church, we find devotion. Instead of cynicism, we find awe at the wonders and signs that God does through broken human beings. And then thirdly, instead of ghosting, we find hosting. Okay? (laughs) Have you ever been ghosted, by the way? Ever been ghosted? Here's what Oxford Dictionary says about ghosting. Ghosting is the practice of ending a personal relationship with someone by suddenly and without explanation withdrawing from all communication. One classic ghosting scenario um, is on a dinner date. You're on a dinner date. It's not going well. You want it to be over, okay? This is not what you expected. This is not what was in the profile. This is not, this is just like you want to escape. So you go to the bathroom, you excuse yourself, you go to the bathroom then you escape out the back door through the kitchen, and then the person texts you, and there's no reply. There's no not delivered. So, you, so they send it as a text message, and the conversation goes from blue to green. Has that ever happened to you? Conversation goes from blue to green. What, did you get my ghosting? Ghosting might be a new word, but it is an old practice. We see Adam and Eve ghosting the Lord, ghosting their responsibilities, hiding in the bushes. The Lord's calling after them. Where are you? Where are you? They ghosted. Um, It's a form of self-protection. Many of the people in the early church who themselves are in the midst of the early church leading it, they themselves ghosted the Lord when it mattered most, when he was being tried, crucified, They were nowhere to be found. They were denying him. They had escaped. When we ghost, we say with our actions, I'm no longer willing to be in your life. You can't have me anymore, and you can't know why. We withhold ourselves. Ghosting is a form of withholding ourselves. Withdrawing ourselves. Hiding in the bushes. The Lord calling after us. Yet, look what happened to people who ghosted. Okay, what happened to them? What did they do by the power of the Holy Spirit? Verse 44, and all who believed were together. They were together and they had all things in common. Now, this word together is a familiar word, koinonia. As I said before, it does not refer to a feeling. It does not refer to a feeling of being close. That is important and that is good. It refers to a practice of sharing your life. It's a sacrificial life. We practice it every time we give in the act of worship. We practice it every time we host someone over for dinner. We do it every time we hear about someone having a need, and we pull from our resources, and we meet that need. Verse 45 says, They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. One of the things that prompts people to ghost is they are trying to hide something. We want to hide something. We don't want part of our life to be seen. And so there's some fear of of intimacy in ghosting. Um, Here what we see in the early church is that people are willing to let their needs be known. And then others who heard about that need were willing to let their resources meet that need. So it's the original church listserv. If you've ever been on the listserv, the original way that church kept in touch with each other informally, and this only happens when you're in community with people. It only happens when you've pressed past the temptation to ghost. Verse 46 says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now here the Christians are opening their homes. They're opening their lives. They're opening their tables. And it's like a new set of habits, a set of hosting habits to replace the ghosting habits. Ghosting is the way of the flesh. It's the way of isolation. It's the way of self-protection. Here we see hosting. Not only will I not leave you, but actually you're welcome into my living room. Welcome around my table. Taco Tuesday after Taco Tuesday. Um, Receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. Now we can look back longingly on this as many have done and wished that we had this. But the truth is that this was a sacrifice and um, hosting, hosting is a sacrifice. Letting your needs be known is a sacrifice. Meeting the needs of others is a sacrifice. There are many things given up for the, the act and the culture of koinonia, of sharing. Um, it, takes the, it takes a lot to stay in Chicago. It takes a lot to stay here. Um, It takes a lot to become hosts here. I'd like to talk to some of you who have been at Emmanuel Anglican for some time. I wanna say thank you for hosting. Thank you for, for opening up your table, opening up your life, paying a deep cost to make sure that the life of koinonia of the church, of sharing, of breaking bread, that that can happen for people who come through and need a place to be hosted. I have seen Acts 2, 42 through 47, played out over the last eight to nine years again and again. I've seen prayers and breaking of bread in people's homes. I've seen whether it's liturgical evening prayer or morning prayer, whether it's prayer over Zoom, prayer around a table, the laying on of hands, the act of sharing— helping people find a parking spot, making another meal, doing the dishes late, hosting and hosting and hosting. You've done it, and I've seen it, and it means so much. I know that many of you are tired from this. It has worn you out. You're really, you're feeling the exhaustion. You're feeling the strain of year after year bringing people in and sending them out. Um, This year, what I'm praying for is a season of rest for you of renewal for you, of times of refreshing where you can be hosted, you can be loved, you can experience the the miracle of having a shared life. Times of refreshing. I'm praying for that. We're looking towards that. We're planning for that. Thank you for hosting, Emmanuel Anglican. Thank you for being, you are a church that does this. And I'm so proud of you for it. For those of you who are new here, I wanna invite you to join us Become a host yourself. Um, The future of the church is not an anonymous future. It's not a a future where we're we're all by ourselves or just with a very small pod. The future of the church is is a hosting church, an open table church, an open life, an open schedule church, a needs being expressed and needs being met church. That's the future of our church and the church. Um, so here are really practical ways to become a host. Um, even if you don't even have a have a, an, even if you don't have a place in your home to invite people into, if you see someone you don't know here, and it may be that they've been here for a long time, I don't even know. You can be a host simply by introducing yourself and inviting them to lunch or inviting them into a five-minute conversation. That's one small way of being a host. Um, another way to be a host is to, is to serve on a team here and actually be a part of the infrastructure that, that hosts people and welcomes them, welcomes them in on a Sunday morning or beyond. Um, and then from there, you invite people into your life, into your week. Um, people who are outside the church, inviting them inside the church through you, through your gifts, through your time, through your schedule. The city tends to make us anonymous, does it not? If we go with the flow of the city, it will turn us into an anonymous person who's only known by a small pod, if that. Just a unit. But the church flows in the opposite direction. The church makes us a people where we are honored individually, but yet we're part of something bigger. And the feeling of koinonia often does follow the activities of koinonia. I think one of the number one reasons that it's easier to ghost than to host is fear of rejection. Have you ever had a fear of rejection that you put yourself out there and you would be rejected as a result? Rejection is painful and we want to avoid it at all costs. This is especially true when we are inviting people outside the church to join an event or a gathering or a meal. You put yourself out there and it's like, if they're like, you know what, I'd rather not. It's like, oh, sorry for asking. Hi. In his book, You Found Me, New research on how unchurched nuns, millennials, and irreligious are surprisingly open to Christian faith. Rick Richardson writes this, God can use our invitations in the lives of others, even when they seem to fall flat in the moment. Have you ever done that? Your invitation has fallen flat in the moment. We don't see any results. It can be surprising how an earlier invitation that was rejected can lead to a new openness and interest down the road. Sometimes the transition from a rejected invitation to an accepted one can happen quite quickly. And then he tells the story about a woman named Laura. Laura was a woman in her 80s. She was walking down the street talking with her friend. A random dude interrupt them and said, Do you want to come to a, a meal at our church? And they were like, Don't count on it. They kept walking. And yet, when the time around seven o'clock, they were like near the church and they're like, well, maybe we should just like see what's going on in there. They come in, they're welcomed. They start eating popcorn and hot dogs. Someone starts engaging them about their life. And somehow their story of church hurt came up, their story of pain. And they, they got some traction in this conversation as the person gently kind of like challenged them about it. Like, well, was that really their fault? And they started to engage them on this. And then they said like, hey, you should come to church on Sunday. And again, Laura said something to the akin of like, don't count on it. And yet she felt herself being drawn like a magnet, 9 a.m. on Sunday, that's not our service time, that was their service time. She found herself there and the Holy Spirit took it from there. And she said herself, I don't think I would be in Jesus or in church at all right now if that random person hadn't invited us, hadn't interrupted our conversation and invited us to this church event. Um, hosting is a life where we're putting, lo- we're putting a lot of invitations out there, and we're actually risking rejection. Um, we're-, we're risking being ghosted, yet we do so because the Father and Jesus have invited us and welcomed us to this table where we are never rejected, where we're never cast out, And so this is where we bring our fear of rejection. We don't hide from our fear of rejection. We actually bring it in all of its pain and all of its uncertainty to the table of our Lord. And we let him absolutely accept us with his unconditional love, um, which is stronger than any person could ever love us. Jesus loves us like that. Through his death and resurrection, he gives us acceptance and courage to become hosts. So notice as we conclude the impact of their faithful hosting and living. Verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord, it was the Lord adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. My friends, listen. It is the nature of our Lord to build his church. Yes, he prunes it. Yes, he purifies it. But it is the heart and the nature of our Lord to build his church. The pruning is for building the church. He is not a subtracting Lord. He is not a deconstructing Lord. He does not deconstruct his bride, though we have many flaws. Um, he does not tear down the church. He adds to the church. He told his disciples he would build his church, and the gates of hell would not stand against it. He he does not lead people out of the pews into the pecan trees. It might be a spiritual experience for you to leave the church, but it's not the Holy Spirit leading you. That's not the spirit of Jesus. And it is not the future of the church. The future of the church um, is rich and vibrant. It's devoted. It's It's filled with awe and wonder. It's sacrificial. It's invitational. And that's the kind of church where the Lord can entrust people that he is saving. That's the kind of church that can, that can bring them in, graft them in. So I want to plead with you, do not abandon the church that Jesus has given his life to. Don't abandon his church. Work through your hurt. Don't drift from the church that Jesus has committed himself to forever. The church is precious to Jesus When we look at these verses, we should read about a bride that is precious to Jesus. He loves her so much. He's given his life to her, and it is in Jesus that she has a future. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.